Good evening. I'm Fiona Mountford, Theatre Critic of the Evening Standard, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here for this Rutherford and Son platform. My guest tonight is very well known to all of us. One of the most prominent directors here at the National, she has directed As You Like It, Treasure Island, Antigone, and of course the all-conquering beginning, which went on to have a hugely well-deserved West End transfer. Her extensive work elsewhere includes Macbeth and The Merchant of Venice at the RSC and the prime of Miss Jean Brodie at the Donmar. It's a pleasure to have her here with us and she is, of course, Polly Finley. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Polly, Rutherford and Son, as I'm sure we all know, is routinely referred to as a 20th century classic and yet it's almost never performed. Now, lots of theatre fans I know had never seen it before this production. So how come it's done so rarely? And do we spy the dead hand of the patriarchy here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about it um, as, a, as a piece of work is that when it was first produced, it was reviewed really brilliantly. And it was, it was the first play of a playwright that, uh, for the purposes of that first production, was billed as K.G. Sowerby. And the critics all went mad for it and uh, hailed this playwright as the great new voice of the generation. And then, um, inevitably, in, the, uh, in all the press and publicity that surrounded that production, it came out that K.G. Sowerby was, to everybody's great dismay, actually female. Um, and then, uh, from that point onwards, every, every play that she wrote was mysteriously um, trashed by the critics, and she sadly lost all her confidence, in fact, and, and, and stopped writing. And uh, I think that, that, that if she had gone on, if she had received the kind of support and encouragement that um, I think she would be more likely to have received if she'd been writing in, the, in this climate, um, or, or, the, or the kind of praise that her contemporaries, like Harley Granville Barker, were receiving, um, uh, she would have gone on to create, I'm sure, a, a body of work that would have um, uh, secured her place in the canon and as a, a name that we all recognise. So um, I, I, I think you're absolutely right there, that, um, that there's something about the circumstances of, of her life and, 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 the, and the, the environment in which she was writing at that time, which has... Um, to a certain extent, bankrupted her legacy. And one of the reasons that I wanted to, to, to do this particular piece at this moment was because um, I felt very strongly that she was a writer that ought to be restored to her place in, in the canon. Had you ever seen it before? I'd never seen it before. I read it um, a long time ago now and have always been really struck by it. Right. Um, and it's always been something that I've wanted to do. Um, I and mean, one of the things that I think she does really brilliantly and actually I think is still in its own quiet way um, still completely radical is that the, the way in which the play is written, it's the mark of a really genius playwright actually I think, is that it functions in a very different way in 3D to the way that it does when you read it on the page. And in, in three dimensions when the play is played on a stage you become very conscious of um, how actively silent these women are <laughs> through um, quite a lot of these exchanges. And I think that she's found a way of articulating dramatically the kind of constant, silent, imaginative and interpretive labour 
that women are so often engaged in in a domestic context. So, so she's found a way of making it very clear to you how often the women in that scene are having to decode and read this male behaviour and to say, um, OK, I think you're in this mood now, so I'm going to offer you a cup of tea at this... No, not this point. I'm going to wait two... No, now is the moment for the cup of tea. And that is so brilliantly teased out and executed, I think, um, that it, it felt to me that as a... That, that um, although of course it's it's it, it, it's a naturalistic play and 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 adheres to the conventions of its time in terms of the writing, actually there's still something quietly radical and um, surprising, uh, fresh in 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 that set of dramatic constructs. And so I, I really wanted the chance to have have a go at exploring that in a rehearsal room and bringing it to an audience. You're right. The silence is very eloquent on stage, isn't it? The women you see them, but on the page when you're reading, you sort of forget that they're still there, but on stage, they're absolute, the silence speaks volumes. Yeah, and it's an extraordinary achievement for yeah. a first-time playwright, because when you read it, you know, it says, Rutherford, and son, you know, and, and you're, less con you're less conscious of how, um, what, a, what, a, what a key part of the kind of onstage dramatic architecture the figures of these women are. Um, and it, I think that's the sort of thing that it usually takes five or six plays to, for a writer to work out, yeah. and there she is delivering it absolutely fully fledged um, in just a line or two or briefly in fact perhaps could you tell what was your overriding aim for this production what did you absolutely want to achieve what a great question um well i mean there were a few things i mean i, I think i wanted to find a way of making clear the thing that we're describing i mean that, that felt like my mission statement in terms of um honoring the playwright and her intention I think that I felt very strongly that um, I, I wanted to create a kind of domestic atmosphere that, um, that felt as authentic as possible to the time. Um, so it feels like, and particularly when you're in the Littleton, I think, uh, it's very easy to, with all the resources and um, experience that the National has at, at creating a kind of picture-perfect Victorian scene, like unless you're really careful, you get into Dickens at Christmas very fast <laughs> and I really didn't want to um, fall into what felt to me like the obvious trap was was creating a kind of um, uh, beautifully realized beautifully detailed full national theater um, uh, you didn't want it to feel like a kind of lovely house that you would quite like to spend time in um, it felt important that you didn't it didn't feel like it could have been painted in Farrow and Ball you know like um, with lovely exposed uh, floorboards and that you know that's actually quite a lot nicer than my flat um, so so the, I wanted it to feel very much like that the, 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 the prison that these children are in in the house was something that felt oppressive and um, difficult and that, that you could really feel the kind of um, privation and difficulty of um, authentically what it might have been like to try and live in a house in winter on the edge of a moor in that time period. It looks like somewhere, it looks like it's always raining in Rutherford and Sunland. It looks like it's never sunny. Well, we really did go for the rain, <laughs> um, as those of you who haven't seen it will see later. Yeah. But it looks like it's never, never sunny, 365 well, days she, they, a year. They say it at the beginning, it's... you know, she says, does the sun ever come here? And Aunt Anne says, sun? <laughs> and it's, 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 yeah, it's not part of the currency. If you could have had Geetha Sowerby with you in the rehearsal room, what would you like to have asked her? Gosh, what a great question. Um, well, I think, I mean, she's one of the things that I always find most 
interesting in, in rehearsing a play, particularly a play that's set in a naturalistic setup in the way that this one is, is trying to be really forensic about the things that the characters aren't saying. Okay. So um, a tool that I often use when we're rehearsing and that I end up talking to the actors about a lot is that, is that I think it's my job and their job to try and find a way of navigating their journeys through that play um, absolutely in street view. So you know when you, when you look at directions on your iPhone, you can, you can either look at the whole journey that you're going to do in a bird's eye view, or you can go into the kind of street view thing and, and turn the corners with the programme as it goes. And in, this, in the second version, you, 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 you don't have a sense of what the end point is. And I think that it's um, the, 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 a trap, really, and very easy to fall into to play the end of your character's journey all the way through, rather than to be really honest about what they're actually experiencing live in Street View at that time. And, and one way of, of trying to get to that point, I think, is always asking the actor, I mean, you have to ask, why are you saying this thing? But it's always a really um, useful exercise to say, what are your other options? What, what are the other five things that you're choosing to keep a lid on at this moment or not to say or to rephrase or to translate? Um, and uh, we did all, a lot of that work on beginning and having David Eldridge there um, provided a great shortcut to that. He was able to sort of say, well, these are the other, you know. So, yes. so I think that... Um, there are some moments where I would love to have said to Geetha, um, what, what, what was the scene that you didn't write here and, yeah. and, and, and why did you choose not to? Yeah. Anything else you would have, anything else she could have filled you in on? Or? Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, um, I mean, like as I say, I think it's a really wonderful bit of playwriting. I think that there, um, I tell you what, there's, well, for those of you that haven't seen it, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but there's, there's one scene towards the end where we were, um, really trying to crack the riddle of the writing in a way that actually I think for the for the rest of it it was remarkably um clearly crafted the the, the sort of um you know the cross section like if you, you felt like if you could cut the scene and, and see the cross section you could see all the layers of everybody's intentions all the way down and then there's, there was a really fascinating scene towards the end and I, I won't say too much but where, where I think almost for the first time is this right in my directing career the man's journey was not properly thought through. <laughs> and, and everything that the woman said, um, that the female character said, uh, you, you, you could understand everything that in her, in her back history and in her intentions and in her obstacles and in her intentions. Yes. And, and, and it changed every time she spoke. Oh, and actually, there's, the, there's this one moment where the, the male character is, is, to be honest, stuck on the same line oh. all, all the way through. Um, and I thought, gosh, I'm really used to solving that problem with a female character. And I have no vocabulary for dealing <laughs> this. <laughs> um, so, so, so I would like to have so picked her brains on that one. She could have gone, that's yeah. deliberate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. what history was going to do to me, yeah. so I left it. I left it hanging. The cast, I'm sure those of us who have seen it will all agree, is absolutely magnificent. Polly, talk us a little bit through the casting process. What qualities were you specifically looking for? Um, well, um, I, th I think, you know, a lot, in keeping with the kind of um, avoiding Dickens at Christmas thing, um, we wanted to find people that were able, that we thought would be really able to carry the kind of um, detailed documentary reality of, of that world with them and who were going to be interested in, um, I suppose, mining the detail. It's all set in one room. I love working like that because it gives you kind of, there's sort of nowhere to hide actually, that you can't, there are no real tricks available to you. Um, the only thing that, 
the only resource that you have at your disposal is the actors and, and your job is to just to keep going and encourage them to be um, braver and braver and dig out more and more and more. Um, and, and that's a specific kind of acting skill set, I guess. So we were really clear about wanting people that were going to be really interested in, and happy to spend an afternoon saying, let's just look at this tiny, tiny corner of what this mosaic is. Um, and uh, so that was probably the first thing, yeah. I guess. Um, and then I think, you know, it's um, with a character like Rutherford, for example, I mean, um, Roger was interested in doing it because when we had a glass of wine and um, I asked him about the play and he said, well, I think that the reason I'm interested in doing this is it's a bit like um, playing Leah. <laughs> like it's a bit, so it was a bit of a way, it's, it was a way of playing Leah, um, which I thought was a really great steer, yeah. actually. And, and I guess like that character, it's very easy to imagine the completely... Um, well, two things, actually. You can imagine both um, the, the, the completely dislikable, full tyrant version of that, yeah. and you can also imagine the performance of that part where the actor was working overtime too hard to make that person likeable to the audience. And, and trying to find the, f the, the balance between yeah. being brave about being um, nasty, yes. uh, but at the same time making you understand why this person who behaves by any objective standards so monstrous, monstrously um, human um, requires an actor who is has, has, a, has a particular kind of emotional intelligence, I think, and, and also, to be honest, is um, somebody who is vain enough, uh, not you know, vain, um, not vain enough to, uh, to, to 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 feel that they have to. Um, be sympathetic yeah. at every at every moment because you don't want a Rutherford sort of playing for audience sympathy, do you? That would be tricky. You, you, well, you, you just wouldn't get any. Um, the, the gas would run out of the tank. Yes. I think if you did that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, theatre buffs will note, and I'm sure relish, that there's a certain amount of recycling in the acting company, as Justine Mitchell and Sam Troughton were your leads in beginning. Now, what are the advantages of working again with the same actors? And are there any potential pitfalls in that? There are huge advantages to it, I think. I mean, chiefly because you have a vocabulary with, with them already um, and also a kind of ready-made bank of reference points. Um, so, I, I, I mean, one technique that I use all the time in a rehearsal room is a, is a thing called resist the condition, which I think is just the absolute best acting note of all time. It's not mine, it's Conor McPherson's, actually. And um, I assisted him here way back when, when I was starting. And he said that it was the only note that you ever need to give any actor is resist the condition. And what that means is whatever condition your character is in, you should work really hard to push against it. So on a very basic level, and this was very key to, to Connor's work, if the character is drunk, then um, if, as the actor, you put all your energy into working really hard to look sober, then you look totally pissed because only a really drunk person will be working really hard to walk in a straight line. Um, and I guess the other example that we all know already is that it's much more moving to watch somebody try not to cry than yeah. to cry. Um, and and uh, that is a, a little thing that I use all, all the time. Um, you know, don't lose, work hard not to lose your temper rather than losing your temper or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, so, so to be able to just say in a very shorthand way, I think you need to resist that a bit more okay. rather than having to go into the whole thing each time, for example, um, yeah. sets a tone in the rehearsal room and... Um, uh, affords you a kind of ease of communication which just makes life much easier. Yes. I suppose the pitfall in that case is, is that um, 
it's quite easy to, to not be democratic. Yes. Um, in that, like, I know that Sam and Justine know exactly what I'm talking yes. about. So um, the, the temptation is just to say, oh, you know that thing that you can, yeah, really fast. And, and, and not to um, and the others all have to go and keep ask the door them at the tea open. It's exactly you might be talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. Now the rehearsal process. People I know are always interested in the idea of a rehearsal process, as indeed I am. So. For example, can you tell us what theme, you, we've discussed this a little bit, but the, the drudgery and so on, but what themes and ideas you were particularly keen for the cast to explore? Did you explore some ideas together in rehearsal at the beginning that you really wanted them to absorb and think about? We did a massive timelining exercise, okay. um, which I really like doing for plays like this. So um, the first week and a half really is more or less all around the table. So um, we go through it and, and, and do an exercise called uniting, where, where you, you just mark um, a, a line across the page every time you can identify a change that takes place for everybody. So if this was a scene that we were directing and the door opened, that would be a unit because something has changed in the weather of the room for everybody at the same time. Or if it began snowing, or if I suddenly had a nosebleed, all of those things would count as a, a unit. Um, so that so that you're in terms of this exercise about street view, you're you're clear where those corners are. Is it a collective unit or individual units? The, round the table is a collective unit, okay, so the rule okay. has to be that there's a change for everybody. So if a big oh, okay. new piece of information arrives in okay, the room, or, yeah. Um, uh, and then as you go through, you're finding that process individually for everybody, but it would just take the entire rehearsal process if you did that all at the beginning. Um, and then the other thing that we do when we're going through is identify anything that's referenced about what's happened in the past, and then our staff director, our assistant director, writes that down, um, and you, you stick all those events up on the wall and, and work out in what order those might, might have happened, and then ask everybody to fill in their back history around that. So you end up with this deeply, deeply, massively satisfying thing sure. all the way through um, around the rehearsal room where you You've got everybody tracking their lives from age one all the way to the point where they're age doing one. the play. Wow. Including Rutherford. Yeah, yeah. So it, wow. was, it was great so that you okay. were really clear that there was a kind of shared history and that we weren't, that when, where we were making things up, we were all very clear that we had completely so um, agreed on what those... This isn't a spoiler. So Mrs Rutherford, where is she on the timeline? Well, that was, as you can imagine, a subject of some debate. Yep. So, um, uh, where did we conclude... Well, what we thought in the end was that she had uh, died when Janet was about 12 and John would have been about nine. So, so about 25 years prior yes, to the start of the yeah, action? Yes, that's, exactly, okay. that's, that's exactly right. Wow. Um, um, and how did you come to that specific decision? Uh, well, there are a few things. Uh, there's a documentary clues in the piece. So, so um, Janet talks about the way that they used to fight and then says to John, you don't remember. <laughs> Um, and we knew that we know that John was in the house much less than than Janet was, but we felt that at twelve, if, if John was eight or nine and she was twelve, she, she would be yeah. adult enough to have had a sense of, of of what the nature of those fights were. Okay. Um, whereas an eight-year-old boy probably wouldn't. So that felt like the latest possible point okay. that she could have she could have oh, died. Um, but yes, that was a key thing actually because yes. it feels like the, the absent mother in that house is is, like is very strong Lear, for she? Yes, well, exactly. Claire, yes, quite right. Now, we all know that the Littleton is a very big and it's a very wide stage. Now, perhaps you might tell us something of the challenges that that poses. And, and I noticed that for this production, you've blocked off the sides of the playing area. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, that was part of what, um, partly because of what we were talking about earlier in terms of wanting to find a way of um, 
understanding the true dimensions of the house and not telling the story. I mean, I guess the, the thing about the little tin is that everything suddenly goes into very cinematic, beautiful widescreen. Um, and if you're not careful, it um, well, it does two things. I think I think on the one hand, it can make you feel, as we were saying, kind of very luxurious. And certainly in the context of modern London, like how anybody could have any problems at all when they have this much space, um, uh, which doesn't feel helpful to the play. Um, and uh, I think also it does, a, it does a funny thing, I think, to the relationships. If you use the full width of that theatre, I think it lends itself very well to a certain kind of acting, um, where, where, where the thoughts and the lines are kind of bigger, bigger than, um, than they are in life, so that you're, yes. you're asking those thoughts and those lines to travel across distance. And, but with a play like this, that, which was so much about the very precise weather in the room, it felt that we would be not serving the playwright, actually, by um, asking those lines to travel a greater distance than is more or less naturalistically feasible. How much percentage, roughly, space have you cut out of the little tin with the blocking? Well, off? the challenge is sight lines, of course. Yes, so you yes, can't take yes. too much out because those no. seats at the side then have a very difficult time. So, I mean, I, I think we've probably only taken about a kind of metre or a metre and a half off each side, but actually, in the end. It makes a difference, though, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the other thing that we were able to do, which I was thrilled about, was that we were able to break the pros line. So I think the, the other thing that can feel difficult in that theatre is that you can it can feel kind of quite confrontational because it's so <laughs> epic. Um, uh, so we were able to to use the truck and to, and to bring it, uh, to lose some seats, which you're almost never allowed to do, which is very exciting, um, <laughs> on the front row, so that we were able to bring that right sailing right over so that when they're yes. on the peak of that, uh, when on, when the downstage corner, people feel like they're more or less in the audience, which I think has been really successful, actually. Well, that was, my next question was, well, those who've seen the play will know the set is a glorious combination of naturalistic and audacious. So tell us a little bit more. You started there. The design choices that you and designer Lizzie Clacken made, because they are, they are... They are very notable and they're very exciting, I think. Oh, thank you. I'm yeah. glad you like them. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, the, the, the nature of this house felt really important. I mean, so, so the, the setup is, for those of you that don't know the play, um, that, that Rutherford is um, an industrialist, he runs a glass factory, and he, his is the big house in the village. So in, in some way, everybody in the village is dependent economically on this, on this house for their, um, for, for their well-being and their income. Uh, and, and it's very clearly set apart from the rest of the village in the way that all of those houses were deliberately so, so that they're the kind of big house on the hill. Um, and Janet, uh, the, his daughter, describes very eloquently the feeling of um, when she was little, uh, having knocking on the window and making signs to the other kids to come and play because she was so far removed from them. And that felt um, very key to our understanding of what the feeling of that house was. It's very clearly on the edge of the moor. They talk about all this terrible weather all the time. And so we, we wanted to find a way of understanding the kind of loneliness and isolation of that house. So um, having a sense of the architecture of the full thing so that you can, you can feel the whole shell of the house as, um, as we've done felt very key to that. Being able to get that kind of vertiginous um, edge of the moor feeling by sailing over the front felt very key. Um, and we wanted to uh, use, use the resources of the NT to, to have a sense of the kind of relentlessness of the weather. So there's a, there's a, there's a rain curtain at the beginning when you come How in. How cold is that water? I think we need to know that. Um, that's a good question, actually. It I don't looks know. cold. Good. Yeah. That is good. That's what I, I felt, meant to do. Yeah, I'm thrilled I about that. I felt a bit, I sort of instinctively sat back a little bit. 
but we want, yeah, but it's, but I mean, I think, it, you know, it, it feels like there's this sort of sense of looking out at this endless rain and that the landscape is, yeah. in December, bleak and it's cold and that that's all, that's, that's all that there is to, to, to look at. It's, it's that rather than human contact. Um, and, and, and the musical landscape of the, of the play is also a big part of that, I think. So following on from what you were saying about this, the absent mother, yeah. um, we wanted to find a way of understanding something of that absence in a dramatic way rather than just leaving it to be in inferred in the way that they are behaving in the room. So um, we've got uh, what I think really beautiful a cappella three-part um, folk singers who are singing um, uh, folk songs from, from, from the place who are out in the auditorium. So we wanted the beginning to feel kind of like an installation with the singing and the rain and the sense of this house kind of. Um, this relentless structure with the relentless rain with these little humans trapped in it and not able to get out. Yeah, but I think that sense comes across very strongly. It's, it's a pretty bleak prospect, that house, I think. It's... Now, the cast's accent are all wonderfully specific. Now, that must have involved some detailed work with a dialect coach. Yeah, we had a fantastic dialect, dialect coach on that. Yeah, and we had, I mean, there's... And, um... and is the person, there's a dialect coach in all the time? How does it work? Do they...? No, actually, um, uh, everybody did a good sort of 10 days' worth of stuff beforehand. They did some quite intensive dialect work in advance. And then, as a group, um, individually? Um, mostly as a group, I okay. think, actually, in the end, mm -hmm. um, which, was, which was great. So, so everybody felt like they were hitting the ground running with that, which I think yeah. is really important, because it's a tricky one. It is, it is a tricky one. difficult, northeast. Yeah. Um, and uh, we discovered that the trigger word, like, you know, all accents have, like, a trigger word to, like, if you say it, you can get into it. And the one for Geordie was conjunctivitis, which I thought was <laughs> <laughs> quite enjoying. Um, so people would do like conjunctivitis. Okay, now I can do this. Um, uh, and, uh, and then and then Danielle, who was the dialect coach, was we came in sort of four or five times over the um, rehearsal period and would watch scenes and then was around a lot during previews to give notes. Okay, that's now it's increasingly common for us, us theatre goers to see the name of a movement director listed in production credits. Now, what you had movement director Polly Bennett working with you here. What was her involvement? How, how much involved was she? Well, um, one of the things that I was interested in was this sort of like um, this sort of constant female chorus of domestic labour, yes. um, and uh, again, Geetha is very clear about that. I think that there's there's a lot of stage directions about um, the, the women keeping the the room going, practically running the dinner, fire. keeping the fire going, tending to the baby. In fact, the baby stuff we we more or less all invented. Um, but uh, so, so that, that felt important that there was a kind of um, sense of this kind of uh, fe female, like, like a chorus in, in, yeah. in a way. Um, and, and it felt so, so the way that I always thought about it was that um, in, in, in many sections of the play, it's as if, you know, Rutherford and Son having these big, uh, Rutherford and his son having these big arguments about what's going to happen to the factory feels like the kind of like, you know, in the piano score, like the right hand. And that's, yes. that's the kind of, but, but, the, but the, the, the bass, the, the, the left hand, that is, is always this female story. And so I wanted to find a way of being able to split that as we were rehearsing so that um, if I was having to look at the text at that moment, there was always somebody who was able to curate the, the bottom line of the score. So Polly was on bottom line curating She duties. was, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So again, how involved was she in every day for rehearsals? Or did she sort of 
She was in for most of it. Was she? Yeah, I mean, it's okay. always a challenge with that kind of thing because um, uh, what always happens is that you create much more than you use. So that so that we had um, a totally constant, constant, constant um, activity line yeah. for an awful lot of it. And then, of course, as you as you learn how to focus it and, and where you need to be looking at, at what point and, and, and how also you throw those actions into relief so that you really notice them when you need to notice yeah, them. You, you, you always end yeah. up then doing quite a... Um, quite a big editing process. Because you don't want people pulling focus, do you? Exactly, you don't want yeah. people endlessly sort of decorating or rearranging a dresser and so you're not listening to what someone else is saying. Exactly, yes. Exa so exactly. Yeah. Share with us one thing, one thing, anything you've learned doing this production. Gosh. It's really hard to direct babies under <laughs> nine months old. <laughs> um, uh, a baby's not responsive to sort of directorial. They just tune it out, do they? Uh, it, well, I, mean, I was surprised, actually. We did, we did a lot of tech rehearsals with the babies who were completely thrilled to be on stage. And then weirdly, when an audience came in, they were really, like, clearly okay. sent something and didn't okay. want to be there anymore, um, which was interesting. Um, well, I think that's a good thing to have learned. Okay, don't, okay. Don't, don't, <laughs> other things, don't direct babies, so don't, don't employ babies, fine. So that's a really interesting one. I mean, I think... That, 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 I mean, it's, it's always about acting, isn't it, really, I think, what you come out with. Like, that, that, that there was a sort of, um, like, I guess the process of directing any play is, is learning about how it should be acted. And, and that there was there were some surprises in the way... That, that what was tricky about this one from that point of view is that I think, you know, thinking about beginning and, and using some of the same actors from that, what had been such a, a pleasure in that production was we're spending so much time looking at the, I the iceberg underneath the line. Okay. So that um, what David Eldridge is really brilliant at doing, I think, is, 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 is writing a line under which there is a, a complete um, uh, iceberg of emotion and, and that that's the thing that we're trying to get at it in, in the little inarticulate thing that is said on the top of that. And so that play um, very much gave itself up to um, directing this, almost completely the scene underneath the scene. Right. And I had thought that that was going to be more the case with this play than it was, because there is a huge amount of stuff going on of underneath course. the scene. But actually, in the, in the end, it also has something in common with an Ibsen play, and that, like, actually, in the end, they do end up standing there and saying the thing that they think. Um, yes. Uh, which is so. So I think that the dis the discovery really was that it was like um, that <laughs> you, you could you could understand why it had been set in a glass. What 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 the relationship to the glass factory was. Yes. So that so that a bit like when you make glass. Um, these characters are heated to a point where they have no choice but to change shape yes. and, and finding the balance of that, that that really like you know crudely like subtext through to I am telling you what I think like that tipping point and how to negotiate that I think was the biggest well, learning. The characters are they're part of the glass making they're, they're being made into glass yeah. Yes, yeah, so well, that when we hit on that as a as a as a thought it yeah. felt very helpful That's in terms of liberating helpful, the, the journey that they were on. I'm going to ask you one more question and then it's over to you. You've done all sorts of shows in all sorts of spaces at the National now. Does it get any easier or is it just as much of a challenge each time? Well, you think it's going to get easier, don't you? And then it, no, it's, it gets worse, I think. How's it get worse? No, on the, on, only in that, like, like I say, really, I mean, it's the, it's the joy of it, actually, is, is that um, 
of course, every time you start something new, you're bringing all the lessons that you've learned from the previous thing to it. But um, the privilege of it as a job, I think, is that it actually gives you a chance to remake your job every time that you do it. Yeah. So that, so that it, it is a case of trying to crack the riddle of this particular play and work out what limb you need to grow in, in order to be able to facilitate that writer's vision, really. And um, uh, so I, I think... Um, you become more and more aware of your responsibility for doing that. So, so in a way, I don't think it. I don't think it becomes um, easier, but um, I think it becomes. Uh, I think I suppose I feel like my toolkit is growing. Look, there's so much here that we can talk about, but I'm sure many of you are keen to have a glass of wine before you actually go and see the show. Now, we're going to have to wrap things up. So, all that remains for me to do is to thank you all very much for coming, and of course, to thank our guest Polly Finley. Thank you.